Uh, good morning. I am Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here and very, very excited to have you here. Also online, if you're new with us, we're so thankful to have you here. We are in a series called Parables. Now, I know we're six days away from Christmas. We have a Christmas Eve service we're going to have at 5 p.m., almost at a.m. That would be wild. 5 p.m., this Friday, if you want to come, bring your kids. We'll have candlelight. We'll be singing. It'll be an awesome, awesome time if you're in town. I know many of you travel or, or moving, moving around, doing your thing, but we want to encourage you to come out. Today, we're going to continue in our parables series. And if you're new with us, the idea of a parable is an earthly story that Jesus would give with a heavenly meeting or a kingdom meeting as he's trying to get all of us wrapped in the story of God. Jesus would often come and he would share in teachings and share stories. And aren't you glad? How many of you guys like story? Come on. How many, how many of you have already seen the new Spider-Man? Come on. Some of you, oh, you're too holy for that. Spider-Man's not bad. It's okay. God loves you. Uh, I know we've got a group of guys. I've got 44, 45 guys going to see the Matrix Resurrection. On Wednesday night, we might get sport a few tickets if, if you want to see me afterwards. We'd love to have you, but we, we've got a bunch of guys going to see the IMAX because we like story. We enjoy it. Of course, I'm older, so when The Matrix came out, I was a big super fan. And uh, dude, I know Kung Fu. Like, that just, that was awesome. That was so great. If you haven't seen it, I apologize. We love story, though. And Jesus was a master storyteller. But his intent with telling a story was not just to entertain us. Maybe a story or a movie uh, you watch or a story you read provokes something, invokes something in your heart, which we love, the emotional capacity. Maybe a story you've seen or read did change your life. Maybe it shaped the way you think or you think differently because now you know a broader story than just our little tunnel vision story that we are a part of every day. It's the beauty of story. It really opens our heart to new things. And this is why Jesus would use story. He would use parables to teach because those stories opened up things about the kingdom of God, which he came to preach. And he would say this, he came on the scene preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is simply just where God is, his domain, his own nation, his own people, and where he rules and reigns. That's what the kingdom is. And Jesus came on the scene saying these words, repent, which we think about the word repent, and maybe you think of like a street evangelist calling everybody to turn or burn and repent. But Jesus came saying these words because repent simply means change the way you think and subsequently the way you act. Our thinking changes, then we act different, then we get into habits and better habits or good habits. But it starts with changing the way you think and act. And so he's trying to share a story with everybody that is different maybe than the story that they've had playing in their life. Maybe different than the stories that they grew up with. 
Many of us grew up with different movies that if I say lightsaber, you're immediately going into the story of Star Wars and the whole world of Star Wars. Or if I say blue pill, red pill, you're going into the matrix. I say Frodo or stupid fat Hobbitses or something like that. You're going into the world of Lord of the Rings, right? And, and we think about that world and it has its own measures and it has its own way and it has its own characters. Jesus comes on the scene in a world with a story, with a narrative. And their narrative came from scripture. The kids at a young age, even it was recorded, some kids by the age of five had at least the first five books of the Bible memorized. This was their heritage. This was their story. So imagine when they hear something from this story, it's evoking all sorts of thoughts and feelings because these are my people. This is how we raised up. This is where we are. This is the story that we find ourselves in scripture. And it's helpful to know that as Jesus comes in and builds an even better story or changes even the story that they had, much less the one that we have. Now, I want to start before we dive into the parable with this idea in mind, kind of the end in mind, starting in Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says this, it's on the screen or open it yourself. It says this, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, there's a race that is set before you. And we're either going towards the goal or away from the goal. But God has a race. Each one of us are made to run. And he says, run with endurance. But I love this next part, which is why I highlighted verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the cornerstone, the, the main part, the one that authors our faith, our story, he says, as you're running, keep your eyes on Jesus. How many of you guys like to read? Do we have readers in here? A few readers, yeah? And maybe you like certain podcasts or certain YouTube people that you like to listen to either for entertainment or maybe you've stumbled upon someone that's helped you in, in weight loss or in time management or money management or in having your, your employees and having to lead employees or any kind of different thing you can find on a podcast, a book, all those kind of things. And we can find somebody that we listen to. I mean, even just in the background of our lives. And let me say, that's not a bad thing. We need multiple sources, I think it's good, in order to speak it to our life, especially truth. And I would say people that are even far from God can stumble upon truth because all capital T truth is God's truth. 
all things that is a truth statement at the end of the day is orchestrated and founded by the author who is God. And so we can learn and grasp. Maybe you have, I get like a weekly email from Tim Ferriss, if you know who Tim Ferriss is, and he'll give you like these highlights, or I know G loves him some Jocko. Uh, Jock, he's a Jockite. Uh, he loves Jocko, and Jocko is, 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 is a great Navy SEAL guy. I also teach on leadership. We've done some of his books even in staff. We love bringing in some of these different ideas because people say things in a different way with their story in mind. The author here, though, says as you run, he's not saying stiff arm those things, but make sure the one you're running after is Jesus the most. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're in the Christmas season, and the idea isn't just travel and try not to get COVID. And it, the idea is to celebrate the gift of Jesus and keep our eyes on him as we're running this race. Because what's dangerous is when we get our eyes off something else. I don't know if you've ever done this when you're driving. If you're looking this way, next thing you know, you start to drive that way. I was taking my son out, getting ready to teach him how to drive a, a year and a half, a couple years ago now. And uh, we, were, we were taking off and there was this curve and I wasn't paying attention. And I was looking at something and I jumped up on the curve, almost hit a light pole, swung around and I'm like, then that's how you do it, son. And that's how you do it. Um, but what had happened, my attention was somewhere else and my hand went with it. The vehicle went with it. And the author is saying, the goal is to keep your eyes on him because that's what it means to be a follower of him. If you don't keep your eyes on the person you're following, you will get distracted and you will move. My passion today is not just to give you a different way to think, but also to get you to think differently today to think about what you're thinking about and who you're following. And my passion today is to look at the words of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus to endear our hearts to Jesus, to trust him so we'll keep focused on Jesus. That's what I wanna do right now. And this is what the author says. And this is what he says. We're looking to Jesus. He's the founder. He's the beginning of our faith. So we don't move from him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he says this, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As I'm looking at Jesus, I'm not just looking at him because he is the most successful person I ever know. And he obviously knows the right way to do finances and life and love and marriage and everything like that. But I'm looking at him because of who he is and what he's done for me. And I even see, even though he was great and full of success, he suffered greatly and had hostility. So when I'm suffering and frustrated I'm just merely following the one who went through it and endured and lived. This is why, I don't know about you, but I, I appreciate the guys that are alive that can speak into life and life right now and be current and relevant. But man, it's good to read the dead guys because they finished the race. And even more so, the guy who died and resurrected because he conquered death. I want to follow him. I wanted to start by saying that because 
as we dive into this parable, we're going to read all the way through about 19 verses. We're going to come back and talk about it because I want to understand what does it look like to follow Jesus and what are the words and the ways I need to do so. Let's start Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Check it out. It says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse nine, here's our parable. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, for they feared the people. Now, just like any story, when you dive straight into the story, it's helpful to kind of stick in there in order to get context. We're diving right into something that is going on, a conversation with Jesus, and things have happened to get us here. Again, it's kind of like when you start a movie and you're like, why is that person flying? Or why is that person doing this? And you're trying to figure out what's happening. You've got to stick through it to start to get the context. Let me give you a little bit of context. First of all, it's important to see who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to these religious leaders. They're called Pharisees and Sadducees. They are very much 
opposite and different from each other, think, think similar to like Republican Party and a Democratic Party. Think about that, these people, but they've come together united under the hatred of Jesus because Jesus threatens both of them and their power that they have in Israel and ultimately around the world with Rome. So they are looking to trap him. Have you ever had someone maliciously looking to trap you in words? Or maybe they bring back words that you said and constantly repeat them as if that's who you are. If you've been married more than three minutes, this has happened to you. In a conflict or in a conversation, you said something that was stupid, you should have said it, and it took you a long time to finally get to the point to go, oh, that's why you're mad, because of that dumb thing I said. And now I'm apologizing, but now I've got to keep apologizing because, nobody's ever experienced this, it's not real life at all, because we're still talking, but that person is still angry about the thing that was said previously, even though you apologize, because now everything's skewed through the filter of that thing said. Nobody else has experienced this. This can be a very frustrating thing because then everything else is filtered out of that. And this is what they're trying to catch Jesus as he's healing people, as he's preaching, as he's teaching. They're trying to catch him in a certain thing so that they can not only discredit him and dismiss him, but ultimately kill him. This is what they're maliciously trying to do. So what provoked them to come up to him? He's at the temple. And let me give you a little bit of background of what's happening because this is super helpful to understand. And otherwise, we can read this out of context. It, this is about two days before Jesus is about to die, this event is happening. And previously, just a couple days before, the day we celebrate called Palm Sunday, which is the week before Christmas. It's, we celebrate it because Jesus is coming in on this colt, on this donkey, coming down from Bethany, going to Jerusalem, getting ready for this big Passover, which is the greatest festival in Jewish history. They do this Passover meal and everything every year. More than 100,000 people come to this area, and Jesus is coming down on a donkey, and the people are so elated to hear who this Jesus was because he's healed people. He just recently resurrected someone from the dead. And all of these works and things that he's done, the things that he said, the people are starting to turn to him. They're frustrated with the religious people. They're frustrated with the authorities. And they're looking at Jesus with this compassion and his teaching, even though some of it was hard to understand. They're going, we trust him. He comes down on this colt and they lay down these palm branches, signifying him being the, the king the rightful Messiah they've been waiting for. And the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, tell them to stop. This is just a couple days before this parable. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, if they stop, the very rocks will cry out. Jesus is threatening the ruler's power, which is also their money, which is also their identity and their whole way of life. Because Jesus is very different than us. So you have this triumphal entry that's just happened a couple days. In a couple days, he's gonna be crucified hanging on a cross. He also, after that scene, goes into the temple and he sees the people selling merchandise and exchanging money at exorbitant rates and he makes a whip and he drives them out. 
This is a huge deal at the time, but Jesus was so mad at the corruption of the temple and the religious leaders at that time because what was happening was every year you would come and you would either bring an animal, it would have to be inspected by the priests to make sure there was no blemishes. If there's no blemishes, then you could sacrifice that animal. But most people, because they're traveling far, did not bring an animal, so they would just go there with their family. They would purchase an animal, and then they would take it to the priest, get it verified, apple verified, yep, it's good. And then they could sacrifice it and make their sacrifices and atonement. Well, they had started selling animals, not outside the temple, which was right. It was okay to sell animals to prepare people and help people have a sacrifice. But they started creeping into the temple. Not only that, they were selling them at an exorbitant rate. So somebody would spend maybe uh, one denarii, which is a, a day's wages, on a dove in order to sacrifice. They would bring it, and the priest would say, nope, it's no good. It's got this blemish, but you could purchase one right here. And they would go purchase it. And true story, they would sell it for 15 denarii, 15 times the amount. And that one is certified by the priests. It was also known that they would take a lot of times the one that had a blemish and then repackage it as certified to make money. You understand how corrupt this was. Also, not only that, but they had to pay a temple tax once a year. Not only did they pay exorbitant taxes to Rome, which was upwards of, historians say, 40 to 50% of your income going to taxes, governmental taxes, everybody. Not only that, they then had to pay a temple tax once a year, and they would come and they would pay that tax. Most of them did not have a shekel, which was the temple money, because all the money they had had Caesar's face on it. You were not allowed to use that in the temple because nothing with an image. There's something about the Ten Commandments, no graven images. They would not allow that, so they had to have an exchange. So people wouldn't have a shekel. They would have to exchange their Roman money or Greek money for a shekel, and the exchange rate would be upwards of 25% interest. And then if you needed more change, tack on another 25% interest. Do you see now why Jesus was mad? But do you also see why the religious leaders were mad? Because they were making some bucks. This is not the first time people try to make money off religion, right? We hear about that, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Just read your Bible. This is, Jesus came to save people from that. He's good, and he's mad. He's saying, this is not right. The sacrifices are right. The heart is right, but you are extorting people. So he drove them out. And let me tell you, the religious leaders are mad. They come up to him, and what do they say? Who gave you, this is where we start, who gave you this authority? Who told you you could do this? It would be like if right here while I'm preaching, someone just stands up and starts preaching themselves and doing it. And I'd be like, hey, bro, who are you? I don't even know who you are. Who gave you that authority? It's a legitimate question because he is interrupting their religion. Listen, their way. And, and this season, guys, I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas. I love it because of what it is, the gift of God given to men. I hate it because of how we package it. This beautiful little baby boy in this little straw bed. Oh, it's so cute. And, and, and all these people coming and just doting over him and give him in gold. Everybody's just happy about Jesus. And let me tell you, this man ran his whole life because people tried to kill him. 
from his actions or his words, from a baby. That picture of the wise men, first of all, there weren't three, there were multitudes, and that happened when he was around two years old. Like, we have this weird picture in this story in our head of life and Christmas, and then when things don't go right, we're mad at God. We're mad at people, but we have the wrong story. This parable is all about a people that have the wrong story. They have a story of a person that is going to serve them, that is going to help them, and is going to ultimately help them conquer all of Rome, all of their enemies, and yet Jesus comes in in a very different way. So let's look at the parable, our last about 12 minutes we have here, and see what is happening. And what I want you to notice, if you don't get anything as we're diving into this story, I want you to get this. Jesus is a genius. It's hard to want to trust, read Jesus' words, read your Bible, pray, go to church, like do the things that we're called to do as followers of Jesus, looking to Jesus. It's hard to do if you don't think he's brilliant. Otherwise, you just kind of compartmentalize him to like the guy who was born on the earth for Christmas and the guy who died in Easter and he's really helping me one day to be good. But do you, do you know how brilliant he is? Do you know he's the greatest psychologist? He's the greatest lawyer debater? He's the greatest CEO king? He's the greatest prophet ever. And when you see him that way because you see how he lives and acts and responds, you now, listen, are endured to him to go, I wanna be like you. I wanna do what you do. I want to follow you. Watch what happens as we go back. We see this verse one. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elder came up and said to him, what we just said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, God. Now he didn't do it. First of all, we need to see the genius of Jesus by how he approaches people that ask him a question. You know, everybody, not everybody that asks you a question, you need to answer them. Because they already have an answer for you. They already know what they think or believe. And Jesus right away knew what they were trying to do. So what did he do? He did a very uh, rabbi, very pr- smart response. I will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This, we don't get the brilliance of this, but this is so brilliant. He's not being like a good politician that doesn't want to answer the question, so he's redirecting, right? He's not doing that. He actually answers them in a way that gets him back in a level of authority to show his authority and superiority. But being a humble person, he's not going to like, you know, drop on them. And, and watch even just that little statement. He asked them a question. He's like, I'll answer your question if you answer this question. But it's so brilliant. Verse five, he says, and they discussed it with one another saying, oh no, guys. Okay, if we say that John's authority came from heaven, came from God, then he's gonna say, why did you not believe him? Jesus is gonna look at us and say, well, why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you get baptized? But if we say he's from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John 
was a prophet. So Jesus, they come at him as authority. Jesus asks one question and takes authority over the whole circumstance to the point where they had to go, we can't answer you because they're afraid of the people and they're afraid of the response if they say John's authority was from heaven. And Jesus said to them, all right, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. But here's the genius of Jesus. He actually just did. Because they were so afraid of the people, and they literally even didn't know where John's authority came from, they thought if they said it came from heaven, that Jesus, get this, was going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? But I don't think that's what Jesus was going to say. I think Jesus knew he got him right away easy because if they would have said, well, yes, we perceive that John was, got his authority from God, was able to do his things because of what God did. Here's the deal. Jesus would have said, not just why didn't you do what he said, but do you know what John said about me? And we read in the scripture what John said about Jesus. It was made known. Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the, of the world, Who, whose feet I'm not even worthy to strap sandals on. He would have gotten them, listen, not only by their words, but also by their words proclaimed that he is God. He is Messiah. He is a genius because he answered them without having to answer them. And he stopped their authority over him by showing his authority intellectually even. But he's not the one, again, that dunks on everybody because he is a humble genius, thank God. And he goes into this parable. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now, we've got to stop for a second right here because I want you to picture it. You've got to use your imagination. We're in a story. A man goes and plants a vineyard. Now, we picture somebody going and we kind of picture some grass and hills. How many of you guys have planted a vineyard lately? No, me neither. Like it's not in our world, but what you need to understand is those, that first sentence, that first line, because this was their world, they would have gone straight to scripture. They would have gone to Isaiah 5, which is a parable of God saying, I planted a vineyard being Israel, my people, and I came to get produce and fruit from them, but all I got was wild grapes, wild fruit. And it was a rebuke. It was a parable. Listen, these religious people, these people, because this was their world. This would be like me saying, there's a guy with a blue pill and a red pill. You immediately are in that world. This is their world. They're immediately going, oh, okay, he's talking about God planting Israel, planting the people. And he lent it out. He let it out to tenants, this would be the religious community, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Listen, this is the whole story of the Bible in this parable. God creates the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1. He gives it to man to take care of, to tend Man goes off his own direction and says, I don't need you, God. Forget you, God. And I'm going to do it my own way. And God is now trying to redeem man back and get his stuff back, not because he's mean and mad and just this horrible boss and corrupt leader, but because he has the rightful 
heir. He is the rightful heir. He has the right to what he created. And we choose to love the creation rather than the creator. And he sends messengers, prophets, people to speak into our life to turn to him and watch what happens. He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard that is his. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is what Israel constantly did to their prophets. Even Isaiah, who we just referenced, was, was known to have been sawed in half by his people. And he sent another servant. So he didn't now send an army, give me my stuff. He sent another service. We see the grace of God. I'm going to keep sending people. How many of you guys know, maybe before you became a Christian, if you're a Christian in the room or online and people just trying to preach the gospel to you, you know, they say it takes about seven times before something just clicks even. So this person spoke to my life. This person spoke to my life. This person. And then finally you have an experience with God where you trust him, but it took multiple messengers and the grace of God. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And yet he sent a third, this one. Also, they wounded and cast out. Again, three, this is God's grace. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And of course, now we know the whole story and Jesus is saying, so I came. Thinking, surely they're going to respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then I think he, he's looking at the religious leaders. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And it's the to others part. They get it. Yeah, he wants to get what is his. But to others, we're the chosen people. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, pay attention as we wrap up. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what you need to understand is when you're building a building in that time, a temple or a house, you have what's called a cornerstone. And it's the first stone laid in the construction. And it's very important to get the perfect measures, to have it perfect in order to know how big or wide this house is. That one is going to be the one that everything else grows from. And this is what he says. This is brilliant of him as well. We don't have time to go into all of it. But in Psalm 118, he says, he, re he repeats the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Is What he's saying is, you see me. I am the stone that you said, nope, this one's not it. This one doesn't measure up to the way that we've built our life, our religion, our Christmas holidays, our finances, our sexuality, whatever it is. That, that I'm looking for that perfect stone that then instructs how I'm going to build my life and live according to me. And God said, I sent you the stone to build everything off of, and you rejected it. And Jesus says, that's me. And then he says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. This is humility. 
You don't come to Jesus like, of course you want me. Look at me. We come to Jesus humbly. Broken. David would say a broken and a contrite heart God will not deny. He says, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And I don't know about you, but I read that without context of what's Jesus' life, which we're celebrating his birth, but also his death. And this can sound like maybe your boss giving an ultimatum. Listen, you're either going to do things our way, according to the way we do things, and build your life on that build, or you're going to be fired. You're going to be crushed. And that's what this can sound like. But it says the scribes and the chief priests, because that's what they hear, sought to lay hands. This isn't to pray for him. On him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, very perceptive, but they feared the people. Here's the parable. God creates lens as a steward to take care of. He comes back, he sends a servant to reap his produce and they shoot him aside. They hurt him. They get rid of him. He sends his son and they kill him. This is a very different view I think a lot of us have of God and Christianity. That God's here just to like send me good things and when bad things happen, I'm really upset and I blame God and I'm mad at him because I'm supposed to have a really good life. And, and, and yet the gospel says, actually what's going on in my heart is I hate God, hate him. I, I am his enemy. And so he comes and he says, build your life this way. And I go, no, nobody else does this. Even today, I'm a pastor and I still, God will say something. I'm like, oh, and the Bible says this, that our flesh and our mind are, have enmity, have fight, fight within ourselves. And how do we get that fight and lend it over to Jesus? This hostility is coming to my vineyard. No, it's my, it's my life. It's my thought life. It's my finances. It's my thing. No, no, no. And I kick you out. I send my son, I'll kill you. I don't want that because I want my way. And Jesus says, listen, what I'm trying to bring into your life is not the building you want. It's not the way you would do it. Don't disregard it like a bad stone, it's the cornerstone that if you come to me humbly, you will break on me and you will have to break up your heart, but I will build something beautiful. But if you don't, you're gonna get crushed. This sounds harsh if we don't know the rest of the story. And I wanna ask you to get your communion ready because this is why we do communion. And we close our service with worship and communion because Jesus says, listen, you're either going to fall on the rock, the cornerstone, me, and be humbled and trust me, or it's going to fall on you. But here's, here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is not a tyrant. He's not a bad boss. He ends up saying, that is so true that I'm going to choose to be crushed by sin. 
you either fall on me and humbly receive me and I will build what I wanna build in your life, which is gonna be far better than what you can do, or you're gonna be crushed. So because I know you're not gonna choose to fall on me humbly yourself, I will allow sin to crush my body. I will fall on the rock. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become his righteousness. We don't serve a God that says shape up or ship out, but literally that takes on our sin and our trouble and our humility and our crushing and the horrible things that we try to build in life or have tried to build that have ended in disaster because it's all out of selfish desire at the end of the day. And he says, I'll become that and I'll be crushed for you. This is the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas who ran his whole life from hostility because people wanted to get rid of him. And then he submitted himself to them so that his crushing could be our peace. This is Christmas. If you've never fallen on Jesus, maybe you never saw a Jesus that fell on your sin. If you've never trusted him because he's so good, maybe you've never seen his goodness or realized his goodness because you think of just authority, do what I want you to do, but no, he is one that always goes first and leads. This is why we sing the song, look what he's done. This is why we wrote this song we're about to sing. Look what he's won. Look at me, look at him, the author and perfecter, the cornerstone of my faith. I trust you because you were crushed for me. I wanna ask you, if you're a believer, take and eat the crushed body for you. And likewise, again, this will just be two days after what we just read. The story of Jesus continues. And he's done all these things and he's sitting around in a room and he's telling them about his broken body and he says, this cup, this wine represents my blood. And it's a beautiful imagery that wine would represent it because wine has grapes that must be crushed in order to produce what the Bible says, wine is made for gladness. Too much of it is not good, but he says it's for gladness. And he says, I will be crushed like this grape to produce new life in a new people, a kingdom people. So take and drink this new life, which is the blood. Will you pray with me? Father, We thank you, God, that you are the cornerstone and we ask that your Holy Spirit enlighten our heart to trust you, God, to trust you, Lord, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, Lord, with every area of our life, Lord. Today we ask for you to move in power, Lord Jesus. Be God, be Lord, be the cornerstone that builds everything as we look to you, Jesus' name.